Well, good afternoon, Grace Bible Fellowship, and welcome to our afternoon service. So, it's good to see everyone out this this afternoon. So, I am, uh, as most of you know, I'm when I preach, I usually preach from the Book of Colossians. So, if you have your Bibles along today, um, please turn with me to the book of uh, to the Book of Colossians, I guess, in chapter one. And we'll be, I'll be preaching today on uh, verses 24 to 29. So, verses 24 to 29 in Colossians chapter 1. I have titled my sermon this morning, A Good Steward. And in our text today, Paul sets himself as that example of being a good steward in the ministry that has been entrusted to him by God. So in the verses just prior to 24 to 29, in uh, verses 21 and 23 specifically, Paul mentions the gospel of which he has, of which he is a minister of. And now he slightly shifts his focus now and he explains to whom he is a minister to. So in verses 15 to 23, Paul establishes Christ as the foundation of our faith. And Christ, the preeminent one, the one who created, created and sustains or upholds the universe, the one who takes a dead sinner, who is hostile towards God and fully and completely rejects God, yet through his grace, he presents them blameless before God. He is the one who reconciles a sinner to God. And Paul, he was appointed as a minister of this grace to the church by God. Because one of the purposes of this letter was to address the false teaching in the church, Paul needs to establish that he spoke out of authority. In verse 1, he tells us that he is an apostle by the will of God. Now he again reminds his readers that his ministry was given to him by God in verse 25. And Paul believes he was appointed to this very thing and that it was a direct command from God as he has written in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, where he says he is an apostle by command of God. And again, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, where he says God appointed him, appointed him to his service. Paul needs to establish that he has authority to speak on matters of sound doctrine. Why, you might ask? Well, imagine with me, in the first few decades after Christ was resurrected and the gospel was going out into the world, that you are a believer in a church in a city called Colossae. You don't have a copy of the Old Testament in your home, and you probably your church doesn't even have a copy of the Old Testament. You definitely don't have a copy of the New Testament. You have heard of Paul, but you have never seen him, as Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 describes. The only thing that you know about your new faith is what you, was taught to you by others, Paphras being a teacher among them, and who also was the one who brought this report to Paul. You don't have a Bible like we do today where you could measure the truth of someone's words by. Along come some false teachers who start adding rules and human traditions. And Epaphras is certain enough that these things are not from God, but obviously most others in his church were not as certain as he was. Or he would not have decided to travel hundreds of miles to find Paul, to inquire of him of these false teachers. But who will now tell the people that 
Paul was an actual authority on matters of the faith and that the false teachers were not. It is crucial that Paul establishes his authority so his words would be believed. Paul must establish that his authority comes directly from God. Paul says this authority is evidenced by his willingness to suffer for the church. You see, if you don't really believe that your ministry is from God, would you be willing to suffer personal harm the way Paul was? Authority in the church must come from God, and today we rely on God's authority through the inspiration of sacred scriptures, and it is now our final authority. The false teachers were probably not willing to suffer for the faith. Just like today, many false teachers live lives of luxury and would be unwilling to suffer for the sake of the church. And even today, false teachers rise up and advise others to go contrary to what the Bible teaches such as relying on visions and, and adding rules and human traditions to scriptures, which is completely common today. We must reject that and go back to God's authority, His Word, to see what it says. Epaphras was wise, and he went back to God's authority himself. He went back to the authority that he had available to him in his day. That authority being Paul the Apostle, to see what he had to say. But today we don't have these living apostles anymore. That authority no longer exists. But we do have the Bible as our authority, so we go back to Scriptures. Objective truth must never come from subjective sources. Although we will subjectively interpret objective sources, the source itself must be just as objective as the truth itself. And today there is only one objective source, and that is the Bible. So going back to the authority of the Word is wise, and it is where spiritual wisdom and knowledge are found. Paul refers this wisdom and knowledge a lot in this letter to the Colossian church. And in chapter 1, verse 9, he prays that the people will be filled with all wisdom and knowledge. In 1 verse 28, he teaches with all wisdom. Then in 2 verse 3, he declares that all wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Wisdom and knowledge were common goals in the ancient world in Paul's time. And these false teachers were deceiving the audience that their wisdom and knowledge held the answer to salvation. It was a worldly wisdom, a worldly knowledge, and a, world, and a wisdom and knowledge that is not found and is completely foreign to Scripture. So remember the context of the letter that Paul is addressing the false teachings that were invading the church in chapter 2. Paul is still building upon Christ as the foundation, and in our text, he is establishing his authority to proclaim it, and he gives us some guidelines to recognize a faithful and good steward by setting himself up as an example. And Paul preaches Christ in his fullness with all wisdom. As a good steward, he longs to present everyone mature in Christ. He desires believers to experience Christ in his fullness. There can be no half-hearted following of Christ. Even when the proclamation of the gospel includes suffering, but focusing, but focusing on Christ and, and, and on Christ in God's word and purpose provides motivation for staying the course. So with that in mind, let's, let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. We'll actually start reading from verse 21. So Colossians 1, verse 23, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So there are four features of ministry that I would like to communicate to you in this sermon. Number one being the minister's joy, the minister's stewardship, the minister's task, and the minister's toil. I have to admit, I found this sermon a little bit difficult to prepare. Not only does this passage have some hard-to-understand portions in it, but it does seem geared towards ministers in the church more so, and I have no personal experience in that area. But I do believe we can all take something from this. No matter who we are, we do have a ministry of our own. If we are believers, we have friends, we have family, we have co-workers, we come in contact with unbelievers every day. We all hurt when a loved one rejects Christ. We all desire our loved ones to come to a saving faith. And we must all be good stewards of what God has given us. We must all be good stewards of the Word and the ministry. We must all toil in our own personal ministries. No matter what that ministry might entail, we must toil in our ministries. And we must evaluate other ministers. We must evaluate other ministries according to the Word of God. And likewise, we must joyfully receive and accept evaluation in return of our own ministries. In verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So ministers can rejoice in suffering, and even in the difficult times in their ministries. The very best thing that God can give us is of himself. Christians understand this, or at least should understand this. If we are saved, then we should believe that there is nothing that can compare with the glory of God. One of the ways that God gives us, gives of himself to us is, is through our suffering. He allows us to suffer so that we learn to rely on him. Take Paul for an example. He is imprisoned unjustly, and he has already spent at least two years being imprisoned unjustly when he wrote the book of Colossians. And he spent another two years after, approximately. But Paul is able to rejoice by looking past his current circumstances and to God. He, he previously wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 to 9, I'll just read it here, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, Paul rejoices in his affliction so that the gospel can go, through, can go forth through his suffering. And as we see in verse 29 of Colossians 1, 
we see that. And also remember that Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 12 to 13, if you want to turn there, remembering Philippians, the book of Philippians was written very much the same time that the book of Colossians was during his imprisonment as well. So Philippians 1, verse 12 He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul rejoices that he is suffering out of love for the church. It is out of his love for the church that he, that he can rejoice. Paul certainly had reason to lose joy from a fleshly perspective. He was unjustly imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. He was beaten. He was deserted by his friends. Yet Paul understands that, that his joy is rooted in humility. When a person becomes too proud and, and believes that they deserve better than their current circumstances, that is when they lose their joy. That is when we lose our joy. When we fail to look past our circumstances to Christ. We lose joy when we start believing that God isn't really working in our life for good to conform us to the image of His Son. And I have found myself in this situation personally myself uh, many times as well, and even recently where I focused so much on my circumstances, even small ones, that I did not look to Jesus, and therefore I did not find joy. I have also found there are times when we make an idol out of those bad circumstances or putting those bad circumstances behind us when we find ourselves in a situation which, which robs our joy, and then when that season passes, we feel like we can finally be happy again, or we can finally be joyful again. And when we are still not looking to Christ, we're making an idol of putting these circumstances behind us. We're making an idol out of living a life of peace, free from bur burdens, when only in those times of putting those burdens behind us is when we find this joy. We still, do, we still are not putting our joy in Christ when we do that. Our joy now depends on our circumstances, and therefore those circumstances, or lack thereof, can become an idol. And that doesn't mean that we must enjoy or always be trying to pretend to be happy when we're going through a hard time or when we have afflictions and trials. We don't enjoy them, and there is a time for lament and there is a time for grieving. But that's what that means to find joy in Christ. We should never seek joy in circumstances in the good times. And likewise, we shouldn't seek joy in the circumstances in the bad times either. We need to look past that and find our joy in Christ and rejoice in Him. Circumstances, people, and worry can be thieves of joy, but we need to learn to humble ourselves and to look past that to true joy found only in Jesus. And this is especially true in the toil and the work of the ministry. John MacArthur says, quote, As challenging and demanding as it is, ministry was never intended to be an arduous and unbearable burden. Paul's attitude of joy should be the spirit of ministry for every Christian. End of quote. So how do we look past our circumstances? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, 1. Hebrews 12, 1, verses 1 to 3. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to run with endurance. Let us not put the hand to the plow and look back. Jesus is our example who we look to. We look to him. And we, we look to him to lay aside our burdens, to repent of our sins, and to run with endurance. And I would say that to, to repent of our sins and lay aside our burdens is to look to him. Just as he endured the cross and the crushing weight of, the, of his father's wrath for your sake, he did not look back, but he focused on the joy that was set before him, and he did not lose heart. And Christ is our perfect example. And Paul continues in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, where he says, And for the sake of his body, Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. Paul is afflicted on behalf of the church, the work he is doing for the church and out of love for the church. Paul and all Christians receive persecution as intended for Christ and persecution out of hatred for Christ. If we wish to represent Christ, then we must be ready to suffer in his name. And guess what? If you wish to follow Jesus, and if you raise your children to follow Jesus, you will receive hatred and persecution from the world. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5 says that we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. As Christ was afflicted, so the church will be afflicted. And if the church is one body, which is Christ's body, then we should not view our afflictions so much as individual suffering, but as suffering as a whole. Parts of a whole, God carrying out his master plan. There is a sense of a certain amount of suffering the church needs to endure and was actually even predestined to endure. And these sufferings will need to be filled up until all suffering is complete and every tear is wiped dry. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Paul joyfully took on himself as much suffering predestined for the church as he could. His suffering was filling up the afflictions for the church. And until Christ returns, the church will suffer and will continue to suffer. And through that suffer, the body as a whole will be conformed to his image and will be made more and more holy. So we can find joy in suffering if we are able to look past our present circumstances and to look to Christ. He is our joy. Ministry, each one of our personal ministries can be extremely difficult, and Paul is testifying to that fact. But we need to view our circumstances as his working in our life to bring us closer to him and conform us into the image of, his, of Christ. And that doesn't mean that we enjoy circumstances we are in, but even when, when times are at their worst, we can still look past the situation we're in and look to Christ as he has set before us and find true joy with him. 
Again, think on how you are doing ministry in your own life. It isn't always easy. But we are all taking up our share of suffering predestined for the church. And granted, some seem to take up a lot more share of the suffering than others. And if, like Paul, the more we do suffer, we can and we should rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer and to receive a larger portion of the church's afflictions. Looking back at our text in Colossians chapter 1, we notice that Paul was suffering due to the stewardship given to him by God in verse 25. Where he says, of, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So first we saw the minister's joy in ministry by looking to Christ. And secondly, the minister's stewardship. Secondly, now the minister's stewardship. And ministers must be good stewards of what has been given to them. When Paul was still Saul, he had a very different plan for his life. He was highly educated and he had a zeal to carry out what he thought was God's will, which was to persecute Christians. But God providentially stepped in and changed all that, and God made him a steward, which means to have a careful and responsible management over something. It was never something that Paul had planned. If we turn to Acts 26, verse 9, Acts 26, verse 9, nine to 11, I myself was convinced, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities." You see, Paul did not volunteer for this, for this position of a good steward or as a minister of the gospel. He was appointed to it by God himself. And Paul's only response could be, as he says in Acts 22, verse 10, What shall I do, Lord? God chose Paul from before his birth to be an apostle. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But when, we, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. He was set apart before he was born. Paul knew the sovereign choosing from God was all of his good grace. As he writes in Romans 15, verses 15 to 16, where he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ. It is by God's grace that he was made a minister. And if God has chosen, then it has become a mandate to preach the gospel. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's maybe turn there in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 16. So it has become a mandate to preach the gospel. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground in boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. This calling was divine, and the call to ministry is divine. And then the minister is under compulsion to be a good steward. This feeling of compulsion carries with it a sense of fear and judgment and heaviness, 
It should become the burden of the minister to preach the gospel he has been made a steward of. Not a burden as if he feels it is unnecessary to preach the gospel, and yet he was forced to. But the good steward feels the burden of the urgency of the gospel message and the eternal, the eternal weight it carries. If God has given this stewardship, then woe to Paul and woe to the man who does not preach the gospel. It should be and is awe-inspiring to have been called to preach, a mere man handling the word of God, the word of God entrusted to men. All who are called to preach should carry this sense and this burden of urgency entrusted by God, and not only those who preach, but also those who have their personal ministries to their family and their co-workers and friends. Let me try and illustrate the weight of it. If a person you didn't know and who didn't know you came up and asked you to take care of some insignificant rock, you asked this person, what's so special about this rock? And his reply was, there's nothing special about it. I don't care about this rock. I just want you to take care of it. You would probably end up just tossing it in the trash. Best case scenario, it'll probably end up in a closet in a corner and it will lay there forgotten. But what if you were approached by a king? This king is good and he is kind and he knows you personally and you know this king loves you. What if this king gave you a treasure of infinite value? This treasure is a diamond so beautiful that all other treasures on earth paled in comparison. And the king asks you to become a steward of this treasure to protect it and not only to keep it safe and protect it, but also to share its beauty with others. You would have a completely different approach to this treasure than with an insignificant rock. Not only are you caring for this treasure, but you're caring for the treasure of a king. So you see, if we truly believe the gospel is the greatest treasure on earth. And it is, after all, the only treasure on earth that has any kind of eternal consequences and any kind of eternal value. And if, and if we are entrusted to this greatest treasure by the greatest king, should we not have a deep sense of compulsion to be a good steward of this treasure, to be a good steward of this gospel, instead of keeping it hidden and forgotten in the darkest corners like an insignificant rock? How do we treat this treasure. If we look back over our lives, could we say that we have been faithful with what has been entrusted to us? I think all of us would probably mourn if we could truly understand the weight and the significance of this treasure and how often we have neglected this treasure. And yet I am so thankful, as we are all, and we all should be, that this greatest treasure includes immeasurable and infinite grace from the greatest king to cover our sins and our neglect. When we contemplate this, it should drive us to the glory of this grace, the glory of the treasure of the gospel. And this is why Paul was so protective over the gospel and and why he declared in Galatians, cursed is anyone who teaches a gospel contrary to what we have taught you. So how do we ensure that we are faithful stewards of what has been given? It doesn't mean that we must try to do everything and that we must try to micromanage every area we might be involved in or try and get our foot in the door in areas we aren't. But it does mean that we must be faithful faithful with what has been given to us. Even Paul, Paul himself did not try to do everything. He was stuck in prison. He he couldn't even do everything. 
Yet he impacted the church probably more than any other person in human history who is not God. He didn't try to do everything, but the things he did, he did them well. And we'll have a look at some of the things in Paul's ministry, in Paul's ministry that he was called to be a good steward of in the third function of the ministry, which is the minister's task. In verses 25 to 28. Says of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Every faithful ministry has certain tasks that are not considered optional, and Paul gives us a few examples of them here. First of all, the task of the ministry is to make the Word of God fully known, to make the mystery of the gospel known among the Gentiles. The mystery hidden for ages was that God would choose to reveal His Word to the Gentiles through the church. Then Paul describes in verse 28 how that Word is made more fully known to the Gentiles through proclaiming that word by warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom with the end goal of Christian maturity in mind. In Paul's case, his responsibility of a faithful minister to the church is to be a good steward of what he has been given, and that is to preach the gospel. We are again reminded of Paul's exclamation of, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Christ is at the heart of this mystery, of this mystery. He is the hope of this mystery. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Him, and He is the treasure of the gospel. There are many things that God has chosen not to reveal, but salvation through His Son is not one of them. Perhaps the most profound statement is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul here describes it as the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ, the incarnate God-man, takes up permanent residence in the believer and all believers. Both Jew and Gentile possess the surpassing riches of the indwelling Christ. The universal and local church was not something revealed in the Old Testament. The Jews were God's chosen one. Yet through their rejection of the Messiah, salvation also came to the Gentiles. Not only has salvation been passed to the Gentiles, but God himself takes a permanent residence inside a Gentile who is saved. This must have seemed scandalous to the Jews. He takes up residence in all believers, and his residence in us is what gives us the hope of a future glory. You don't have to turn with me, but I'll read some verses of this on the indwelling of believers. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You can write these verses down if you want. You, whoever however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells within you. Anyone who who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Ephesians 2, 22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The believer is in God, and God in the believer. We are wrapped up in the Trinity. In fact, the church is described as a temple of the living God. 
2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, since Paul emphasizes Christ in you, the hope of glory, so the Colossian hearers were exhorted to receive and to hold fast in order to have access to this ultimate wisdom and knowledge which comes from Christ himself and not from the false teachers. And Paul's focus is that God's people are completely identified with their representative who is Christ. In Colossians 3.3, he writes that our lives are hidden in him. Because of this relationship of Christ in us and we in Christ, Christ completely and fully represents us. Because he represents us, we have this ultimate hope of glory. And this hope of glory is sure because its representative being Christ is sure. The promise of future glorification is sure for all believers. Romans 8 verse 30 You want to turn to Romans 8, verse 30. And it says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, and notice the tense here, present tense, he also glorified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Hope is tied to Christ and to Christ alone. And according to Romans 8.30, if our glorification isn't promised and sure, then our justification isn't promised and sure which would make Christ untrustworthy, which in turn will make Paul's statement of Christ in you, the hope of glory, completely irrelevant. Paul continues in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, where he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's desire as a minister and a good steward of the word is to present everyone, all believers, as mature in Christ. Christ is proclaimed because he alone is the hope of glory. In him alone are found all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. And this is in direct contrast of the false teachings Paul was warning against in chapter 2. There is no hope, no wisdom, and no knowledge in anything that goes contrary to the gospel. The truth must be proclaimed, which is why we have a duty as believers and in our ministries to understand it so that we can proclaim it correctly. A good steward proclaims by warning people in order to protect them from false doctrines. Paul warned his readers in verse 23 to hold fast and continue in the faith, to not shift from the gospel that which they had heard, to not give a willing ear to the false teachers invading the church. A good steward loves the flock and protects them by warning against false doctrine. Turn to 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. First Timothy 1, verse 3. A good steward loves the flock and he protects them by warning against false doctrines. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And when it comes to warning against false doctrines, Paul usually does not mince words. Flip over to 1 Timothy 6. 1 
Verse 3. And Paul does not mince words here when he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy, unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And again, Paul does not mince words in Galatians 1.9. As we have, where he says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. False doctrine is poison in the church. It deceives people, and it robs them of true salvation found only in Christ. One day, teachers will stand before God, and they will be held accountable for the doctrine that they have taught their people. As John Knox once said, I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. A teacher of the word is under greater accountability, and he does well to have a reverent fear of God, of the God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. A good steward does not play fast and loose with the Word of God, but he understands it to be completely sufficient in all areas pertaining to the Christian life, and he must treat it as such. A good steward warns others, not only against false doctrines, but warns others of personal sin. A famous quote by Puritan preacher John Owen is, quote, be silling, be silling, be silling Ken, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, end quote. The quote wasn't quite as long as that, but you, <laughs> I'm sure you get which part was the quote. So be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be wary of sin in your life. Recognize it and put it to death. So warning is also the negative admonition of a good minister to keep the hearers pure. The preacher must warn or admonish the Christian who might be tempted to stray. Paul writes in Acts 20, verse 31, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In 1 Corinthians 4, 14, again, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. A warning against sin is not meant to embarrass or to shame. It is done out of love for the sheep. I spoke a fair bit last time, a couple months ago, about how God uses warnings to bring about His ultimate purpose. But in summary, God uses these warnings as a means of bringing about His end, which is the growth and sanctification of the individual believer and the purification of the church as a whole. A good steward also proclaims by, by teaching. Teaching in contrast with warning is the more positive activity of communicating Christian truth from the Word of God. It denotes the same activity as the Colossians' hearing and learning of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. A faithful minister both warns his hearers of the dangers of straying and encourages his hearers to grow as a Christian through the teaching of the Word. Turn to 2 Timothy 4, Verse 2, 2 Timothy 4, verse 
Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. So teaching sound doctrine equips God's people for when false doctrines come knocking at the door. Sound doctrine, sound teaching builds the foundation for how a believer lives their life, how they respond to suffering, how they respond to afflictions and broken relationships and persecutions. Sound doctrine determines how you raise your family and how you treat your spouse. Sound doctrine accords with godliness and prevents immature believers from having itching ears and wandering off into myths. Sound doctrine is the heartbeat of the church. It is the essence of the Christian's life. When you, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about who Jesus is, about what he did on the cross, about who God is, about how you relate to other believers, about what the church is and about what the work of the Holy Spirit is, what you believe about these doctrines will establish how you live your life as a Christian. And even whether you are a Christian. You see, there are certain truths that we must believe about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross in order to even be saved. Which is why Paul does not mince words when it comes to speaking of those who teach false doctrines. Paul also warns against those who brush off teaching doctrine as unimportant. Speaking to and of elders, Paul says in Titus 1 verse 9, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so they may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To give instruction and to rebuke, to teach and to warn. The preacher needs wisdom to do this, to know when to warn and when to teach. Although there should be a balance of both, there are certain occasions where one, of the, one or the other is proper and there the preacher must, must have wisdom. It must always be for the benefit of the hearer, for the maturity of the believer as the goal. And this is mainly done, as far as, as far as preaching goes, it is mainly done through expository preaching of the word. And yet expository preaching is only part of being a good steward. But a good steward engages in a spiritual battle. He brings the souls of people before the throne in prayer, longing for people to be saved and for those who are saved to be matured in Christ. He doesn't bring man-made principles, but he brings the truth. And he helps people to love the truth and to love the beauty of God. And this is not something that only ministers must be aware, must be aware of doing, but all of us and all aspects of our personal ministries. All believers should desire of this of other believers. And we should all seek to bring others before the throne of grace. And Colossians 1.23 describes what that end goal is. And what that mature Christian should look like. He says, if, he, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So a mature Christian, he continues in the faith. A mature Christian is stable and steadfast. A mature Christian does not shift from the gospel, not shift from the hope of the gospel. 
All good ministers desire this of the people that they are a steward over. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the gospel bears fruit in the lives of mature believers. Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard and, and, and understood the grace of God and truth. And one day all believers, every Christian will be presented before God. The preacher longs for his people to stand before God as mature believers. As parents, we, we long for our children to stand before God as mature believers. As, as workers in the work field, we long for our co-workers to stand before God as mature believers. We long for our friends to stand before God as mature believers. And we wish to present everyone to the Savior as a mature Christian, a stable and steadfast Christian with a firm and unwavering foundation. And in, and in the general sense of the ministry, Paul addresses this in Colossians 3.16 where, where all believers have a duty to teach and admonish one another that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We should work hard in doing this as though we truly believe that we hold the world's greatest treasure. Which brings us to Paul's application fourth, that ministry is hard work. The toil of the ministry. For this I toil, he says in verse 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Ministry is work. It is labor-intensive, and Paul refers to ministry as such elsewhere. In Romans 16, verse 6, he says, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you, and in Philippians 2.16, hold fast to the word of life, so that in the, in the day of Christ I may be proud I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even the general work of the ministry for the, for the preacher, for the minister of the word, for preparing, Sunday, for preparing for Sunday mornings and meeting with people during the week is hard work. And it should be hard work for all believers as we seek to teach and help each other grow. But we are to balance our human effort. We may toil, but we are to balance our human effort with God's power. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. It is only through God's power that we can manage our lives and our ministries. He commands us and then enables us to do it. Whether our ministry is pastoring a church, planting churches, teaching seminary, or quietly serving God out of the spotlight in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, it all requires work, and it all requires a devotion to Jesus Christ. But we should remember that we cannot do ourselves, we cannot do everything ourselves, and it is better to do less, it is better to do less well than it is to do much poorly. But no one can serve the Lord well without working hard. 
And He will give the grace and the strength required to do it. But we are also reminded that He doesn't need us. And it is of the highest privilege to be called to stewardship of the greatest treasure on earth for the greatest king. And if today I just want, and if today you have not put your trust in Christ, I would encourage you to believe the gospel. Believe the greatest treasure. The only treasure with eternal value and eternal significance. Believe that the creator of the universe is a holy God and that you could never live up to his standard. And that we sin always and continually in open rebellion of His commandments. It's not that we just sin once in a while, but the, the problem is we never stop sinning. And sin cannot not enter the presence of a holy and glorious God. We would be destroyed by His glory if we tried. The only way to redeem us was through a perfect sacrifice. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Innocent blood had to be shed, and the shedding of blood is the only way our sins could be paid for. As the Old Covenant illustrated this sacrifice before through the sacrifice of an unblemished and innocent lamb. So Christ became that innocent and unblemished sacrifice and paid the sins for all who believe in Him. If you put your trust in Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation, then you will receive the righteousness of Christ and Christ will take upon Himself your sins. This is the glorious news of the treasure of the gospel. And He will take your sins and He will pay for your sins with His blood. You will be washed and when God looks at you, He will not see what you can do for Him, but He will see what Christ has already done for you. And this is the amazing treasure. Let us pray. Father, I come before You and I thank You, God, for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that You have given each one of us stewardship of, of this greatest treasure. Help us, Father, to, to be a good steward. Help us to work hard. Help us to toil. And help us to understand that all that strength comes from You. It is not our own strength, by our own strength that we can do this, Father, but it is only by Your strength. And we thank You, God, for what You have done for us on the cross. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.